Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm going to be interviewing Eric Sorensen, the CEO and founder of Carbon Roots International. Welcome to the program, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you have a solution to a pretty serious problem in Haiti. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. In Haiti, over 90% of the households use wood or charcoal uh, derived from wood uh, as their daily primary energy source. So essentially people are cooking over uh, open fires or in stoves using charcoal. And as a result, Haiti is extremely deforested. There's estimates that about 2% of the tree cover is remaining in Haiti. So what my organization, Carbon Roots International, does is provide an alternative to cutting down trees for charcoal. We purchase agricultural waste from small farmers, and we then process that into charcoal briquettes, sidestepping the need to cut down the few remaining trees in Haiti. Okay, so you've done all the testing to see that this doesn't cause other problems by burning this agricultural waste? If you look at what would happen to this agricultural waste, had we not purchased it, it would just be burned openly just to get rid of. Once we convert it into our charcoal briquettes, which are much like uh, the Kingsford charcoal briquettes that we use here in the United States in our backyard barbecues, once that's uh, converted into charcoal briquettes, the emissions are cleaner than traditional wood charcoal that Haitians are using. And, of course, it avoids uh, the need to cut down trees. I'm curious how you got into this. It was actually uh, a New Yorker article in 2009 that, that kind of dragged me into this world of sustainable charcoal. It was an article about the, the cook stove movement, the, the clean cook stove movement that's trying to solve this uh, indoor air pollution problem that we have across the developing world where people are essentially being afflicted by uh, respiratory disease uh, because they're cooking openly over fires or in stoves. And that got me interested in charcoal. And that actually, originally, it took me down a little bit of a different path and got interested in using sustainable charcoal uh, in agriculture. Okay, so what were you doing at that time when you read this article? Yeah, so at that time, I was fairly fresh out of college. I was actually working in the media world in New York. I, I was working at the Huffington Post at the time, actually. Got interested in in doing something else with my life. You know, uh, pretty quickly realized that that wasn't the type of work I wanted to do and shared kind of what I was learning about uh, sustainable agriculture and sustainable charcoal with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and an old friend from high school who at the time was getting his master's degree in sustainability at the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. So the three of us co-founded this organization, Carbon Roots International, about a year after we, we began kind of mulling over this idea of how would one use sustainable charcoal as a development tool to try to solve some of these big global problems. In January 2010, Haiti was afflicted by a really devastating earthquake. That kind of put Haiti on our on our map as we learned more about what the problems that Haiti faced, the agricultural difficulties and you know low productivity, the use of charcoal fuel, it became interesting and we, we uh, made a connection with the Haitian American family that, that eventually invited us down to Haiti to kind of see, see if, we could, if we could do something. So you just went there, you landed, what, what then? Our first trip was September 2010, so uh, we're coming up on the six-year anniversary of our first trip to Haiti. Like I mentioned, we were invited by a Haitian American family that 
essentially, you know, own some land in a very, very rural part of the central plateau of Haiti. So to give you an idea, we land in Port-au-Prince, drove for a couple hours down really, really bad roads, and then hike for another couple hours into this kind of rural (laughs) (laughs) valley. So it was perhaps not the best place to try to really scale an innovation, but it was a great kind of sandbox to try out, test our ideas, and really rapidly find out why our ideas sucked. Out of the kernel of what we were doing, working with these smallholder farmers in rural Haiti and sharing with them what we thought and listening to them about, you know, what wasn't going to work for them, what they what they wanted to do with what we were trying, we kind of eventually realized that we shouldn't be focused on sus- sustainable agriculture so much as energy. And essentially, small farmers in Haiti were telling us uh, that fuel was worth much more to them than food. Uh, they could sell it for much more. It doesn't spoil. It doesn't require a quick access to market. And those are all things that small farmers in Haiti wrestle with. What is the agricultural waste that you get? Originally, we were using primarily corn waste and bean waste. As our company exists today, uh, we really primarily use sugarcane waste because now we're actually operating in a different part of the country that has a little more infrastructure. You know, our process has been designed to be very flexible. So we anticipate soon bringing in a lot of rice hulls and rice waste uh, as, as another source of feedstock for our, uh, what we call our product, green charcoal. Okay. So going back to, you were talking about how you got started and you met with these farmers. And then what were your next steps? You know, at this time, all three of us were still living in the States and, you know, had other jobs and trying to pay the bills. So this was really a passion project. We'd raise a little money from family and friends. We'd fly down to Haiti, you know, try to figure out how many steps we'd taken back in our absence and then, you know, take a couple steps forward. And we kind of refer to this first 18 to 24 months as our garage years, um, to use Silicon Valley parlance, <laughs> you know, because it was really R&D testing out things, figuring out the, the cheapest, easiest, most efficient way to convert agricultural waste into charcoal. Like I said, we were originally trying to focus on encouraging people to put it in their soil as kind of a fertilizer replacement. But what they were telling us is, hey, we're cutting down the rest of all of our trees. Can we use this as a fuel? We pivoted about four years ago because what we realized was that there was this huge market for charcoal there. Charcoal was being made exclusively by small farmers out in the countryside using really inefficient earthen mound methods. You know, there was an opportunity here to kind of disrupt this charcoal industry. And as we kind of took a step back and looked from a macro perspective, we realized that charcoal fuel consumption is a global problem across the developing world. About half the world's population uses solid fuel. So that's like charcoal, wood, or some sort of animal dung as as their primary energy source. And when you go into cities, it's almost exclusively charcoal because it, it produces less smoke. So we saw Haiti as a great testing ground and a, a, a really great place to kind of test out this idea. And From a development perspective, all the problems that hamper projects and innovations in international development exist in this small western third of the island of Hispaniola in Haiti. It's kind of a microcosm of all of the global issues. Exactly. Uh, You know, like uh, lack of infrastructure, political instability, you know, cultural resistance. And so 
we have always said that Haiti is the ultimate litmus test for for our innovation and for many innovations. You very quickly realize whether what you're doing has any legs or not. None of you had a chemistry background, no. did you? How did you figure out how ag pellets burn differently from regular charcoal? There was a lot of emphasis, and there continues to be most emphasis on this indoor air pollution problem, this, this clean cooking problem, uh, emphasis on changing stoves or changing fuel. But if you change the fuel, you always have to change the stove too. So fundamentally, it's a stove problem. It's trying to get people to change what they cook on, and that's a really, really hard problem. Through a lot of trial and error and R&D, we realized that we could create a briquette that didn't require people to change the stove they cook on. They're not getting these huge reductions in emissions. They're getting modest reductions in emissions, but we're getting all the other social and environmental impacts associated. And what are those again? Livelihoods. So there's there's a huge income generation and employment element to what we do and de- uh, reduction of deforestation. It's crucial to kind of understand that in a place like Haiti, which has 98% deforestation rate, it used to be a jungle, and now it's nearly desert in many areas. It's not an ad- abstract save the trees concept. It's very, very concrete because, you know, when you cut down all the trees, especially in a really mountainous country like Haiti, you guys see extreme soil loss. Um, so now you... The, then that affects agriculture. That's right. Way less uh, arable land. You get nutrient leaching. The ability for farmers to, to uh, make an income is decreased. And then you kind of get caught in this, this cycle, this trap. They can't afford a better fuel. And so they have to keep using charcoal and keep deforesting. And now there's a growing, really negative spillover effect across the border into the Dominican Republic, which is much more developed than Haiti and much more forested. And it's contributing to political instability. So they're going over and cutting trees. Oh, yeah. and there's a, there's a very thriving black market um, between the Dominican Republic and Haiti with charcoal. Uh, there's actually a documentary coming out about it. I think it's doing the festival rounds right now called Death by a Thousand Cuts, I believe. Uh, it's winning some awards and it's really profiling uh, from the Dominican Republic side all the instability, the violence that is happening as a result of essentially Haiti being addicted to charcoal. So how are you getting this adopted? So yeah. what, what what's your strategy? Are you building factories? I mean, yeah. you're, you said you're employing people. We realized that we needed to centralize and take advantage of economy of scale early on. We built a factory and have kind of been adding on to it and improving it over the last three and a half years. Uh, it's located outside of Cap Haitian, which is on the north coast of Haiti. It's the second largest city in the country. Uh, what we do is we go out and we purchase largely sugarcane waste from small farmers. We transport that to our factory. We convert that into charcoal dust using kilns. And then essentially that dust is our raw material to then process into... So you we, compress it. We then. compress it. We use commercial briquetting machines to compress it into something that looks, like I said, similar to uh, Kingsford charcoal briquettes. That whole process provides income to these kind of smallholder subsistence farmers, as well as provides significant employment, about 50 people we employ directly in our company. The only non-Haitians are myself and my co-founder, Ryan Delaney. Everyone else is, is Haitian. Then, to your question, how do you get it to the customer? How do you convince them to use it? Um, so from the beginning, our assumption was that our product had to be at least 10% better than the alternative, than traditional wood charcoal, and 10% cheaper. And, how do you measure better? Uh, we actually had a team from MIT come down uh, almost two years ago now and do a side-by-side test in a number of households, cooking tests, and looking at both the emissions as well as the energy efficiency of our product. So uh, we have a you know independent 
independently verified third party, you know, stamp of approval from Massachusetts Institute of Technology saying that, you know, this is uh, more efficient uh, and cleaner burning than traditional wood charcoal. But, you know, that doesn't mean anything to the end consumer. The number one reason they purchase our product is because uh, it saves them money. Um, So it's cheaper for them. It's cheaper for the end consumer. To get it to the end consumer, we train and uh, maintain a network of independent women entrepreneurs. So that's another part of our social impact is that our product is largely sold to consumers through women who purchase from us. You know, we're interested in empowering women. In Haiti, traditionally, women sell charcoal. So it makes sense from a cultural standpoint. And they're the best advocates. Women are the, the cooks. They're the end users. Yeah, yeah. Okay. exactly. And so, you know, we've, we've approached our distribution and marketing as any company introducing a product would. Special events, we've got radio advertising, we've got all that kind of stuff. And we talk about the fact that it's, it's cheaper, uh, but we really have to focus that it's, that it's better as well. We talk about how it's better for Haiti because, uh, and that it functions better than traditional wood charcoal. There's like an assumption that, that a lot of people have that uh, people who are really extremely poor don't necessarily understand the impacts of, you know, their behavior. If their behavior, for example, cutting down trees has negative impacts, that's not the case. They just feel like they don't have any other alternative. People in Haiti, your average person in Haiti totally understands, probably in a much deeper way than we do, about the effects of deforestation and their consumption of charcoal. They just feel like they don't have an alternative. So have they embraced this product? They have. They have very much embraced it. Um, we have vastly outsized demand for the, for our supply. So for us, it's just a matter of scaling our production capacity and, and being able to make more. Currently, we make between three and five tons a day, which makes us actually the single largest charcoal producer, whether it's green charcoal or traditional wood charcoal, in Haiti. Your demand is outstripping supply. Do you have yeah. enough supply, agricultural we, waste? Well, the, the supply isn't the agricultural waste. It's actually production technology. It's helpful to think of charcoal as a commodity. And the way you make money in a low-priced commodity is through volume. So essentially, you know, we need to build up a factory that can produce significant volume uh, or sufficient volume in order for us to, you know, uh, be financially sustainable. That number is 15 tons a day. So we need to get from three or five tons a day to 15 tons a day. And that requires investment. Investment in equipment. Investment in equipment. Because you have the raw materials. Yeah, yeah. We have the raw materials. We've got, you know, the distribution networks. We've got the brand. We've also got the only brand in Haiti. What, what is difficult for us and many other social enterprises around the world is getting investment, whether it's through grants, whether it's through loans or equity investments. I know it's a shaky political ground there, but have you had to get the buy-in of the politicians in Haiti? We have not had to. The political situation in Haiti is, is a little messy right now. There's there's not really a legitimate government right now. There's an interim government and uh, nothing really happens. So you don't you have know, to get a buy-in Haiti. or anything? No, no. So where are you getting your funding then? Uh, our largest funder is USAID, which is the U.S. government's international development Did you approach agency. them or did they approach you? Oh, we definitely, you know, had to approach them. And, um, you know, that's that's a long multi-year process. And then some private foundations in the United States. Uh, I saw that one of them was the National Geographic Foundation. Yeah, National Geographic Foundation gave us an award, a Great Energy Challenge Award. And actually, we were featured on like page four or something, a full page ad in the 
October issue of National Geographic. Seems like something they'd do an article on to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we they, they did blog posts. Uh, Halloran Philanthropies, the Barr Foundation, those are a couple of our big uh, longtime grant supporters. We've really designed this to be a market-based model and to be a financially sustainable social enterprise. Here in the Bay Area, we're really focusing on um, foundations and impact investors. And you're located in Oakland. I personally am located in Oakland. And I'm the only person so involved is in the that, company. Okay, so who's, that's who's where stateside. You're... Everyone else is in Haiti. So this is my domain is raising money. How uh, much do you need? We're raising $2 million. And that essentially builds up our factory to sufficient uh, volume production. In as, order for you to be profitable. Right, right. As well as provide How some runway. How are you raising this money? Much of it's through debt. You know, you can secure debt to equipment. And then the rest is, you know, about half of that is working capital. So we're trying to do blended capital, do grants, individual donations, as well as Are you doing any kind of investment crowdfunding or donation crowdfunding? We've done that before and been not very successful. It's difficult to raise money from the crowd for a project that is so So far far flung. Um, We're actually considering doing a raise focused specifically on Haitian American diaspora, Haitian American professionals. And unfortunately, there's not a huge community here in the Bay Area. I remember the Clinton Foundation was very involved in Haiti. Yeah. Actually, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton have a longtime interest in Haiti. They actually uh, honeymooned in Haiti back when Haiti was a place you would honeymoon to um, in the 70s. As Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton had a big hand in the rebuilding efforts um, and the strategy following the earthquake in 2010. It's it's a numbers game. You know, you got to talk to as many people as possible and um, you luck out with finding people who really kind of get what you do and why you do it. For us, it's a bit counterintuitive that the solution to the global charcoal problem is charcoal instead of ethanol or LPG or something, nearly a carbon neutral fuel source. You know, we're avoiding the cutting down of trees, create a lot of jobs. There's a ton of spillover effects socially uh, and environmentally to to doing those two things. How does it affect the world when a little country like Haiti has no trees? You know, Haiti is about 10 million people. So it's, it's a pretty small fish swimming in a, in a big problem. Uh, but globally, this is like a billion people um, using charcoal, more than a billion people using charcoal on a daily basis. And that has huge implications, climate change, climate resiliency, you know, desertification that we're seeing across sub-Saharan Africa. Is, some of it is for agriculture, some of it's for energy. You know, there's different reasons why deforestation is happening in different places, but a big one is absolutely fuel. Have you been thinking of rolling this out into other countries? countries and other areas and in in that way getting more support. Absolutely. That's a long-term goal of ours. You know, we we're a scrappy little startup is is the way we think of ourselves, so we're trying not to spread ourselves too thin. We often get people contacting us say, you know, come do this in Ghana or come do this in the Philippines or come do this in Rwanda. What do you say to those people? We say, look, you know, we we haven't adequately demonstrated the financial sustainability of this because we're still raising money to, to reach that point in Haiti. If you have, you know, ample financial resources, we'd love to work with you. If not, we'll be in touch, you know, essentially when when this we've we've demonstrated this when at scale. When you've raised your funds. Yeah, and we've yeah. De- demonstrated this at scale in Haiti. So it's been five or six years now? Yeah, it's been coming up on six years. Is yeah. that pretty normal for this kind of a... Um... Not, not for Haiti. Uh, <laughs> usually people flunk out or, you know, wash out a little quicker. My co-founder, Ryan Delaney, and I uh, ran 
uh, cross country together in high school. Where did you grow up? Grew up in Seattle. So I knew from the beginning that uh, we were both pretty stubborn and in it for the long haul, you know, and yeah. uh, could take a lot of hits and keep going. So I think we're we're a bit more stubborn than most in terms of, you know, wanting to see this through. And we, we feel a deep sense of responsibility to our staff and to the people that we support in Haiti. There's really no other employment options for the 50 people we employ and for, you know, for the farmers that have more income because of our existence and the women retailers who we work with. You know, it's it, it's a pretty it's a pretty bad situation in Haiti. People really are living hand to mouth or paycheck to paycheck. So we feel a deep sense of responsibility to see this through and to, to, to make it successful. Tell me about how your fellowship at Santa Clara University mm-hmm. informed your work. How did that all come about? The Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara has this accelerator program. Uh, we were invited to apply, and we applied and got in. So and they heard about your project, yeah, and they invited you. They did. They did. I mean, you don't have to be invited, but they, they kind of reached out to us and said, hey, this, this might be a good fit That's for great. you. There's there's a number of accelerators um, and incubators for social enterprises. We kind of avoided all of them because we felt like we didn't have the time. You know, we were mm-hmm. like consumed with doing what we're doing. But uh, we ended up thinking this, this, this would be a good fit, uh, and it was a fantastic fantastic program working side by side with Silicon Valley mentors for nine or 10 months. So what do you get um, out of a program like that? Th- there's a curriculum that we did kind of over, you know, over the internet for six months. And then that kind of led up to two week in residency in Santa Clara. And the curriculum really, you know, you start with operations, financial modeling. I mean, m- frankly, most most of the entrepreneurs, most of my cohort, you know, the big thing we needed was help with the financials. So just business skills. Just, yeah, it's just yeah. really business skills. Okay. Um, and then, you know, figuring out how to quantify impact and project that out, how to sell ourselves. A lot of it's pitching. I mean, it's a lot of things you would get in a more traditional accelerator. Um, it's just tweaked for social impact. At the end of the in-residency last August, it culminates in an investor showcase where they invite a lot of investors and foundations and funds. But you have an opportunity to to get some investment. Yeah, definitely. And and the center does more than just this one particular accelerator. It's it's a really great program. Especially the, the the amount of time that these mentors who whose time is extremely valuable because because they're uh, extremely successful individuals. There was only a couple of us who were American. You know, there's Kenyans, there's Indians, there's South mm. Africans. It was really humbling, actually, how much time that they invested. Well, they must in have us. seen the social return. Uh, a lot of these uh, mentors definitely, uh, you know, said that this is their favorite part of what they do all year. And these are people who work at Google and Intel mm-hmm. and Apple and things like that. So uh, it was it was really cool working side by side with them. And essentially it was the goal is to get us investable. And, and you know, this is this is impact investable. This isn't hitting a home run in, in traditional VC terms. Mm-hmm. There's almost a higher bar that you have to jump over as a social impact organization that isn't going to potentially deliver, you know, a 100x return to an investor. Um, it's a lot harder to, to make that sell, really. You said Please. you got sick there, didn't you? Or uh, yeah. one of you got typhoid and the other cholera? Yeah, yeah. That's... We've, you know, we've we've taken our At our what blows. point did that happen? Um, I got cholera kind of at the height of the cholera epidemic, maybe 2012. So you had been there a couple of years? Or... Yeah. And again, this is going back and forth. Uh, I was just, you know, there for a couple of weeks at that time. Uh, and again, like I said, we were pretty remote very aware of cholera being in the area. 
uh, because people were being run down the trail on stretchers and uh, many people were dying. I started experiencing the symptoms of cholera, which uh, I don't need to mention, and, uh, you know, and realized, hey, maybe that's what this is. Actually, really kind of stupidly elected to remain working instead of going and seeking medical treatment because, you know, we had so little money that every trip to Haiti was a huge investment for us. And I couldn't stomach the thought of, you know, wasting $800 on a plane ticket and sitting in a, in a clinic. You know, it, it was not a smart call, but uh, I knew that as long as I could rehydrate myself and I wasn't vomiting as well as, you know, having diarrhea, I wasn't in grave danger. So I actually spent another five days uh, out Before you working. did something about it? Before I went back to Port-au-Prince, which was a pretty grueling hike out of the valley, and then went went to a uh, a clinic. And the cure for cholera is just antibiotics. It's it's a very curable disease. That's why it afflicts places that just don't have the inf- medical mm-hmm. infrastructure. Once you you have medical access to medical facilities, like it's very easy to treat. The strain in Haiti was particularly virulent, so it it got people before they were able to get to a clinic or a hospital. And then my partner, Ryan, got typhoid. And How do you get typhoid? I think that's also waterborne, I believe. And over the, you know, over the years, there's been chikungunya. Now there's Zikas everywhere in Haiti. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fact of life in, in a developing country is that, you know, people just kind of assume that, that you know, uh, you might be, be afflicted by one of these preventable diseases or one of these epidemics. And, you know, we think of, Zika as this massive potential epidemic knocking on our doorstep, there people say, well, it's just going to come and it's going to flush across the country and then it's going to leave because that's what happened a year and a half ago with chikungunya. It's crazy because Haiti is 600 miles from the United States. I know. It's uh, an hour and a half flight from Miami. And it's it's really a world away. This is right in our backyard. You know, we kind of feel like we have a responsibility to... uh, to try to improve things in a, in a measurable way. What happened to you growing up in Seattle hmm. where you decided to take on such a project like this? I think for both my partner, Ryan, and I, and our co-founding partner, Hannah, uh, Hannah Erickson, who's my wife now, and she sits on the board. I think for all of us, it, it really was our parents, you know, family instilling values. We actually got introduced to that Haitian-American family way back when because my dad spent a month in Haiti uh, doing surgery right after the earthquake in emergency response. He's an orthopedic surgeon. And so he was in Port-au-Prince like a week afterwards for a month. Um, and, you know, that talking to, to him about that, that was a pretty intense experience for him. For myself, and I think I can speak for my co-founders, you know, we we feel like we were born into a pretty comfortable and privileged situation, and we feel a responsibility to pay that forward, to do something with that great privilege. You know, we were able to go to, go to college, get degrees, and wanted to do something that uh, was challenging and hopefully imp- do some good in the world. What is the biggest accomplishment so far mm. of this project? From a headline perspective, it's probably the fact that we're the largest charcoal producer in Haiti and on our way to becoming the largest charcoal producer in the Caribbean. We're absolutely the largest sustainable charcoal uh, producer, but any kind of charcoal. That's... I think that's uh, a big accomplishment given the difficulties of operating in Haiti. Really what comes to mind is is just uh, the people we work with. Being able to provide an employment opportunity to several dozen 
uh, staff for many years. We launched our factory in January of 2013 after, you know, a couple years of of research and development. And since that time, we've been able to sustain the livelihood of dozens of Haitian staff. And that's a huge thing. All, All but, I think, like two of our 48 local staff, this is their first job with a paycheck they've ever had in their whole life. And many of them are in their 40s and 50s and, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. A couple of them are in their 60s, actually. That's just the economic environment and the employment environment in Haiti. So being able to not just pay people, but pay them every month makes a huge impact. Just some stability makes a huge impact in people's lives so that they can plan and they can invest in their children's future. They can invest in education and healthcare because they know that next month there's another paycheck coming. So I really feel it when I see, you know, when we have like a staff retreat or something and I see the families and, uh, you know, and people say, hey, I was able to uh, send my kids to school and to build, you know, a little addition onto my house or to actually build a house instead of a shack and those types of things I think are a big accomplishment. It's got to feel good. Yeah, it does. Let's say you get your $2 million, mm-hmm. maybe more. Where do you see yourselves in like, let's say five years down yeah. the road? What's what's it going to look like? Step one is to make the first factory financially sustainable. And then step two is to launch several more factories in Haiti. And so they'd be strategically placed in areas that have access to agricultural waste and then all kind of feed into this brand name we have, which is Chabon Boule. Which and what means, does that mean? That means uh, round charcoal, basically. It's kind of I saw on your website they are perfectly round. They look nice. Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of a description of how it looks. So if it's not in branded packaging, you know, you can kind of recognize it because the name is descriptive. Ultimately, we see over the next five years launching four to six of these factories. During that time... We'd also like to begin working with local entrepreneurs in other countries and launching in other countries, probably beginning with sub-Saharan Africa, potentially West Africa, because Haiti is essentially a West African country that happens to be located in the Western Hemisphere. So much of what, what we're doing will directly translate. We believe that this model and product and approach is viable in many other places. Our listeners might want to learn more about your project. Mm. If you can give us your website and how they might get a hold of you if they want to talk to you more about this. Absolutely. You can find us online at carbonrootsinternational.com. That's carbon, C-A-R-B-O-N, roots, R-O-O-T-S, international.com. And we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. You know, you can find our contact info on the website. Great. Well, thank you for being on the program, Thank you so much. You've been listening to Method to the Madness. Tune in again in two weeks at the same time.